we were good at the eBay and Amazon didn't even exist then as far as what it is mm -hmm. now, but we were selling on eBay. We we're selling on our own website. We we're doing Google AdWords. We were doing great on B2C and we were taking existing products, but we had never really taken a brand new product and like launched it. And it was me that was really putting all the money in. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Valuation Masterclass Online, the complete proven step-by-step -step online course to guide you from novice to valuation expert. Podcast listeners can claim your amazing 35% discount by going to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Michael Michelini. Michael, are you ready to rock? I'm ready. I'm really excited. Yeah, let's go. Well, let me tell the audience a bit about you. Mike is an American social media, e-commerce, and SEO specialist who has lived in China since 2007. He's a passionate business connector who helps companies do business in China, as well as helping Chinese companies to work in overseas markets. He built Global From Asia, a cross-border e-commerce community to help cross-border business owners learn, network, make business partnerships, and grow global businesses. Most recently, he has joined as a partner at Alpha Rock Capital, which is an Amazon FBA investment company. Mike, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. I think you did a great job. I'm really excited. I'm also a happily married Chinese wife I met while in China with two kids, soon to be six and four years old, boy and girl. So you're a busy man. Totally busy, really <laughs> overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. Well, we're going to relax now and just enjoy the moment. We don't have any interruptions. We've got our time together. And now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Sure. So honestly, I could probably have a few of my worst investments, but I think this one is, is going to be very interesting and, and was a bad financial investment. It was 2008, March. I had moved to China in late 2007 and, you know, was really excited about everything happening, you know, uh, blue skies, new opportunities. I was already selling online for many years while in, in the US and this the industry I was selling was kitchen and bar supplies online, B2C as well as B2B through some strategic partners. And I had been networking a lot of expats and Chinese people and down in Shenzhen City, China, in the south south border city with Hong Kong. And one of them was named Andrew and <laughs> not you, different Andrew. <laughs> and he says, oh, you do bar supplies online too? I, I actually, he was a sourcing agency. He was a product specialist. He'd been to China 10 years already. And he kind of took me under his wing as a, you know, as a newcomer, as a young guy, the new kid on a block. And he was always impressed with my internet marketing skills and my abilities. And he has so many product ideas. He had all these product ideas and he was also in the same industry and he was doing sourcing, which is basically helping U.S. suppliers finding factories in China. So, you know, he was giving me these, you know, a lot of times it was bar hopping, you know, and, and dirty, you know, street restaurants, street food, barbecues, which I still love, honestly, even though Absolutely. it's probably not the most, it's not the most healthy, but it's definitely the, 
the best bonding, you know, with your big Qingdao beers or those big green bottles of, I don't know <laughs> if they have in America, but those big oversized beers and learning all, learning all the insights of China business, not just from him, but it's, he was kind of like guiding me and giving me the inside scoop about manufacturing. So one of the ideas was, was a, a light up pour spout, basically a bottle top that you put on top of like a, a vodka bottle or, or any kind of liquid. And when you pour it, his idea was it would light up the stream of alcohol to the color of the LED. Hmm. So Fancy. yeah, it's a really nifty. One. Yeah. It's really gimmick. It's a nice little gimmick. So, you know, we're in March, 2008. Wow. I can't believe it's 12, 12 years ago now, but get me all excited about it. And, you know, he's like, you have your website, you can sell these, you already sell your bar supplies, you have your customers, you have distribution, I, I can help engineer it. You know, I'm here, we're both here, we can do it together. And, you know, it sounded like a great story. I mean, he, he had no internet experience, you know, he had like a hotmail and he, you know, he wouldn't do Skype calls sometimes late at night to the US, but he had no real computer or internet marketing skills and he, he was engineer and 10 years in China. So we went in on this together he brought in another friend that was another American that had like legal experiences and we found that there was a patent already. Crazy hmm. story. I don't know. Crazy story. We contact the patent holder. That's a Russian living in New York. I'm still friends with the guy actually. And he didn't make the product. So we were started to do these calls with John and another Mikhail or Mike and Andrew and me. So there's four people and we had these Skype calls bargaining about licensing his patent before we could make it. Mm. And it was, it was going on over a month of calls and he has a lawyer in Florida. He's in New York. We're in China. We're doing these Skype calls, email threads, and he's, he's wanting upfront payments. He's wanting quarterly minimum royalties. We didn't even make anything, you know? So I was getting frustrated. We're on this Skype call. We're actually at John, the, the lawyer partner on our side Andrew and I are in the same home office in my home office. I had even a few Chinese staff working in my home. So we're all jam-packed in this apartment, but we're sitting far away on different lines to look like we're in different locations for some reason. And then I'm looking at John and I said, you know what, Mike, Mikhail or Mike, I like you, you know, but I can't keep talking. I'm making this product. I'm manufacturing this. If you are in, you're in. If not, then I guess you can find me. You can find me. And then he's like, well, Mike, uh, and it was silent. And John's like waving, like, what are you doing? Say, don't say that. Like, cause I think we were bargaining about offer. I think I said, I give him five grand for like a year exclusivity on this worldwide, on worldwide on this patent. And I was just kind of saying, take it or leave it. And I'm going to do this anyway, with or without your consent. Mm. <laughs> like, hardball. and then he's like, yeah, it was hardball. And then he's, John's like, no, no. And Andrew's like putting his hands on his, you know, I, I know it's hard to explain all these different characters, but they're just both like saying, oh no, this young kid we brought in, you know, we kind of needed him, but he's screwing us up. He's not listening to us. And then there was silence. And then Mikhail was there and his floor lawyer. And he's like, you know what, Micah, I like you. You have, I don't know if he said ball, yeah, balls or I don't know if I can say it on a show. But he's like, he says like, I like you at, you just do. You, yes, it's true. Too much talk. Okay. I will accept $5,000 one year and five cents per unit. You know, so basically it was a deposit of five cents royalty per unit. 
up to the 5,000 and then it would be over that we'd have to pay him an extra for the first year. And then after that would be like quarterly payments based on sales and audits and access to financial stuff. So we made this long agreement and did it. And then it went, I don't want to get so deep into manufacturing, but it was a new mold. So it's a new product. So there's a lot more upfront costs, right? So the second hardball I had was Andrew, my friend, my guide wanted me to use his friend's factory. And this is where I, st I don't know, I'll never know the truth, but he, they quoted me an upfront fee of like $20,000 or maybe wow. $15,000 for the manufacturing of the product. This is not to make the product. This is the setup fee. Like there's, there's tooling or molds. And I'm like, that seems really high to me. And he's like, Mike, you know, you, you got to trust me. This is the guy. This is the, this is the guy. I'm like, there's other guys. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> There's other guys. So he was mad at me, but I went, I quoted him. I quoted around a few other factories and I was getting $3,000, $5,000 quotes for the same, same thing. Yep. Upfront fee tooling. So he got really angry at me, but you know, I, maybe I was young and a cowboy, but he was still, I still kept him in the deal. You know, I just said, you know, I, it was actually another, it was a cheaper part of China too. Cause China's huge. People don't realize that, but it was a cheaper part of China. Mm. So anyways, we went ahead and paid the five grand to the factory that I chose and went ahead with it. And then we were getting people, I had my US partners for my e-commerce business, the bar supplies business. Another Andrew actually, <laughs> uh, Andrew, hometown friend, we grew up together. You know, we started the business together while I was still in the US. So he's all excited. He's like, this product is gonna be a millionaire. We're gonna make so much on this. Like, just get us this product. So I'm sending up samples. He's talking to Bacardi US. Mm. Bacardi was interested. And just the lead time. I don't know, you know, this is B2B. And so, you know, it was just taking forever. And for me, I don't know. I said it started in March. I think it got into summertime and we're still like working with the sampling of the product, you know, going back and forth. The LED wasn't bright enough. And then my partner in the US, even I wasn't satisfied with the brightness because I think that's the whole effect, right? You're yep. pouring this vodka and this light, like a lightning bolt shoots out of it, but it yep. was like a trickle of red, you know, <laughs> or blue or green. It was just nothing like what we thought because the way Andrew in China, my, my engineer partner, he kind of just jigged it together. Like he just took a battery, like an eyeball battery and put two you know, contacts to the LED. So it was really strong. Mm. When you actually try to put that into the product and you have just a little battery watch inside of the spout yep. and screws, it was not making that strong enough power as like a nine volt battery when you're just jamming two wires into a bottle at, you know, so to actually make the same thing was so hard. And I found LEDs. I had to get a new PCB. Basically, we had to source the LED from a different supplier to the factory. We had to source a PCB from the different factory. We had to source some mold. And then Andrew, and then there was shipping the US and then Bacardi kept kind of saying, oh, can you make it better? Can you make it this? And then the next big fight was we had a guy in Amsterdam that found us. And he's like, he wanted exclusivity in all of Europe. And we found somebody in the UK and they wanted exclusivity of at least the UK. And I'm like, man, all of this talk, you know, it's like getting into August, September 2008. We still haven't sold anything. And the guy, guy wants exclusivity here. We got Bacardi going back and forth with us there. We got my partner in New York. We got these engineer part. And basically, this was before Kickstarter. I wish we had Kickstarter. But then the other problem was it's a promotional item. Mm. 
so Bacardi was not willing to pay more than like a dollar a piece because they're just going to give, they were going to like put it into their packaging and, you know, right. put it in a liquor store in their Bacardi bottles with their, you know, their vodka and then these this bright red and they wanted their logo and they also wanted exclusivity in all of US. Mm. You know, they're like, we're not going to fund your whole project and buy like a hundred thousand pieces. And I'm like, man, a dollar, you, you're offering me a dollar exclusivity it was this crash course of like business because everyone exclusivity, everybody, nobody wanted to put money down. Everybody wanted to have the rights. You know, I, I was like the only one putting money in. Actually, I was paying for the manufacturing. I was paying the patent holder to five grand of Bank of America. Remember that day? And, you know, I think it got up to like 20, 20 grand. And we did a production run for 10,000 pieces. The Bacardi was still going through, but we started selling on our website because we had a pretty good website. We were like a top, in top Google ranking for all these bar supplies. We had just some many small distributors in the U.S. You know, we had homegrown built that since 2004. I don't know. I mean, I could go for a little bit, but basically what started happening was I wasn't making my money back and then people, then partners want to start getting their cuts. Mm. People want exclusivity. Everybody wanted their money. Everybody's wanting their money. I'm like, we got 10,000 pieces. We, you know, we sold them for $3, get them for a dollar. And then, you know, we got to get to wholesalers and distributors and we sell it on eBay, but then the distributors didn't want us to sell it online because they said it would undercut their margin. You know, we were good at the eBay and Amazon didn't even exist then as far as what it is mm -hmm. now, but we were selling on eBay. We we're selling on our own website. We we're doing Google AdWords. We were doing great on B2C and we were taking existing products, but we had never really taken a brand new product and like launched it. And it was me that was really putting all the money in. So how did it end or how did it go? I mean, it, I don't know. It wasn't like a collapse, but it didn't make enough money. So then Andrew, Andrew and China, I bought him out. Basically we pushed him out. A lot of my friends said I pay him too much for his share of the product, but he's like, I taught you everything. Hmm. And you know, so I, I paid him out up front, him and John, I remember uh, we went to the bank in Hong Kong together and I went right. through cash and just gave him cash like in Hong Kong, like on the streets. I think it was like 10 grand for his share, which he didn't have a company. It was all contracts, you know, but right. uh, I just wanted to get him off my back because he was just on my butt about selling more, getting his share, getting his money. You know, we sold like 20 or 30,000 pieces, you know, but these are like little spouse or like a couple bucks, you know, retail a few dollars, you know, and then, so basically just didn't really make enough money and it was just losing momentum. It was mm. losing momentum. And then Bacardi ended up rejecting it because the craziest, this was the, maybe this is the breaking point. My partner in the U.S. was, you know, sending to Bacardi and then it's just this long chain of communication, right? So it's going from Bacardi U.S. Texas office to my partner in the U.S. And then they rejected it internally because it passed U.S. FDA, but it failed Bacardi's internal quality control test of the material of plastic for a certain percentage of some kind of a plastic chemical. Mm, I can't remember the word. So it's food grade. But, it needed to be food grade plastic, I guess. It was enough for U.S. food grade or U.S. importing. Like it wasn't like going to kill anybody or hurt anybody or it was usable. But their own internal requirements, it wasn't enough. And this was the maybe the maybe I'll say this is the breaking point. The factory in China is like, it's called face. I think you know you're in you're do business in Asia. And it's like, no, our quality is good. They're wrong. I'm like, mm -hmm. no, no, no. I'm not saying your quality is bad. I'm saying that can you give me a different composition of material of this 
percentage of this chemical. I don't even freaking understand, honestly, but they said yeah. they need less than 20% or 30% of this specific chemical of plastic in your plastic of the mold or of the product. And then, I don't know, it was stuck in loss in translation, basically. Mm. So we lost the deal. And then there was turnover. Because this is, I'm thinking it's probably going past Christmas. I think it went into 2009. It just kind of, you know, maybe maybe I wish I had Kickstarter back then or crowdfunding. So how did it end? The ending was it just kind of like died. I mean, there the was ending nothing. was, we just did, it, I just didn't reorder it. Basically, yep. I think I did two batches of 10,000. But it was always on me to upfront yep. pay. Yep. I mean, I was selling them retail one by, you know, like a two pack for like 10 bucks, like $5 each. Mm. And of course I'm paying a dollar, dollar fifty my cost. But then Bacardi and then the Amsterdam guy wanted for like 75 cents per, because he wanted to sell it to his Bacardi and, or his liquor company in the U.S. and Europe for a dollar. Mm. Basically I learned after that the, Promotional market is like a dollar a piece. Right. So let's review the lessons that you learned. Yeah, let's go. What's the number one thing that you learned from this? I mean, there's a few, but I mean, I guess market research, market validation, or selling the product before. I mean, we did have the market. We did sell these. We did have, this was our industry, but I guess I didn't really know the promotional market. I knew like the B2C, like... I didn't sell to like Picardy before. Or I didn't sell to these big distributors before. That's, I should have known a dollar. Yep. It was basically if I had known it was a dollar, then I made, should have make a cheaper product. But it was also hard because we wanted the quality to be good, you know? Yep. But they want to just throw away stuff, I guess. And any other lessons that you learned? Well, I mean, as I mentioned, there's all these, you heard about four or five, six different people involved. Mm. There was a joke. They called me like the Godfather in 2008 because I was making all these deals. Like, you know, I had made some money in Wall Street and I was just kind of like, I didn't, I saved money for MBA and this was my MBA. And, mm. you know, I, I had a few other projects, honestly, but mm. I thought I was just, oh, I'll give this guy half of this one and our 25, there's four of us here, 25% each year. And then you, you're engineering, you're sales, you're like, you know, you do this, you know, it was very rough. Like I had two or three, you know, I did have contracts, honestly, I, I could even dig up that one, but mm. you know, there was like rough agreements without really clear exit strategy. Like what if this guy wasn't, there was no, the, the most important part of a contract is the breakup, right? Like right. what happens if it doesn't work out? And we yep. didn't have that. So it was just this fighting and I just ended up paying them. And a lot of my friends, 10 grand, screw that. Don't pay them nothing. It's just saying you give them some kind of percentage of sales in the future. Yep. That was another lesson. Mm. All right. Let me summarize some of my takeaways from it. I think the first one is the idea of understanding the market. And it's hard to, you know, when you get excited about a product, sometimes we miss, you know, the market. The market's more important than the product. And I think, you know, in this case, understanding that market. And it sounds, you know, it sounds like really the ultimate death blow was probably the rejection because of this concentration of certain amount of plastic. Yeah. And I'm not sure that you could have even did, you know, I mean, that's a hard one to say that you could have found that out. You know, it's a tough one. The second thing that's critical is if you have no sales, you have no business. And, you know, obviously you had some sales online and stuff like that, but without a sizable sales and also with, a vision of that sales being able to really, you know, seriously grow, you know, there's no business. And I, I like to say that for when I look at businesses, 
I have something I call the, the $3 million rule, which is you have to be able to explain with your small business how quickly you're going to be able to get to $3 million in revenue. Because it takes about $3 million in revenue to be able to hire a management team and build a real professional organization that has the ability then to scale to the next level. So a lot of people, they get excited about a little product, but the fact is, is that unless you can get serious money behind it, you know, and serious revenue behind it, it's really hard for it not just to be kind of a one-man show. And I would say the third thing that is really the toughest thing is that you need different people involved in a business in order for you to be successful, whether those people are providing capital or whether they're providing expertise. But keeping everybody satisfied is a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And, and many businesses fail only because they just can't figure out a way to keep everybody you know, satisfied. And the breakups and all that end up destroying the business you know, type of yeah. thing. So those are some of the things I'd take away. Anything, anything you'd add? I mean, I guess I just want to somewhat clarify. We were making revenue from our normal generic bar supplies. Like we were just, yep. you know, shakers and openers. And we were also doing other products for other other people. So this was just, the idea was this could be like one of our, uh, I'm not sure the right word, the leading product. And you could sell the other, the boring stuff behind it, right? Mm. So the idea was, this was like kind of the, the wow. We even sold, we sold some to our competitors, like our online retail competitors, because we use the whole patent and I even got a trademark. Mm. That was maybe, maybe one of my, res, my responses to you. I mean, I still get wow. So honestly, I still have yeah, I still get very cool website idea. online still. I mean, I even still get some leads. I just don't reply because the sticking point is somebody's got to put like 10 grand into this, you know, to get a, you know, to get an order basically. So, I mean, honestly, it could still maybe it could even be better now with led technology, battery technology. Mm. It was maybe a limiting thing. And I was even thinking about Kickstarter. I mean, honestly, crowdfunding i was some people said i should have even done you know i could have even pre-sold these right you could have maybe tested the market by selling them first Mm. or getting bacardi to put a purchase order but bacardi or any of those guys wanted a sample a working sample which makes sense right all right so based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn in your life what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate imagine a young person doing the exact getting excited about a similar type of situation. What's the one thing? They're, they're lucky that there's crowdfunding now. So I would say, you know, leverage crowdfunding. If you have a really unique, if you're doing something totally unique, mm. try to sell it first. Like you said, if you don't have sales, you don't have a business. Yep. But on the other side, I don't like these scammers. Like I even have friends that I almost call scammers. They sell on crowdfunding and they don't deliver. So right. You know, so don't do it. That's the opposite. Like that one makes yeah. me so mad because I did this without crowdfunding and now I see friends that oversell and don't deliver. So definitely yeah. make, at least have full intention to deliver. So definitely leverage that or even if it's not crowdfunding, sell something first. Yep. Sell, you know, I've listened to podcasts and stuff about sell sheets, you know, even have provisional patents. Yep. Obviously, I don't know. We didn't talk about this, but patents are almost BS. Like I, I think that guy agreed because he knew he couldn't do anything to me. Right? right, exactly. I think I could have even sold it in the U.S. market. I could have maybe sold it in Europe without because this is a U.S. patent. I think he realized if I was really going to do that. So I wasted too much time on this patents and, you know, I don't know how you're feeling, yeah. but yeah. don't get don't get caught up in the patents. Yeah. You know, don't get caught up in patents. If you're an entrepreneur, an investor, of course it's important to have your IP. I think the most important is brand, trademark, yeah. not yeah. patents. Yeah. 
Great. All right. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Yeah. Goal right now. Uh, we're, as you mentioned earlier, I'm in the investment company. I'm just building out. We're, we're scaling. We're, we're raising, we're, we're buying out more, uh, brands, you know, I scale. Mm. All right. Scale. All right. Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning to find more stories like this previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk. Visit my worstinvestmentever.com. Michael, as we end, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones who has turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I hope this doesn't discourage people. You know, like I I mentioned, I hinted towards, I kind of put it into my MBA. You know, I think it's way better than MBA personally. So, you know, I think take action and don't be afraid to fail. You know, I think it's even Steve Jobs has some kind of quotes. You know, there's all all these successful people say, if you're afraid to fail, you'll never do anything, right? You'll, 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 so, you know, don't be afraid to fail. Got it. Great advice. All right. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.